0: I
1: say everything's
0: going to be all right. I say everything's going to be all right. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's IAQ Radio for Friday, July 10th, 2015. This week is episode 375. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at Studio D, actually, in Central City, Pennsylvania, is our engineer. John, you got to have faith. The Z-Man is in flight at the moment, so he will not be able to join us. Our guest this week is Dr. Joe Spurgeon. We're going to talk about his new book, The Collection and Interpretation of Mold Samples. Let me start again. The Collection and Interpretation of Indoor Mold Samples. A Comparison of Methods. Before we get started, I also want folks to check out the IAQ Radio website. We've got the new search box in there. Check out the IAQ Training Institute website. We've got the Healthy Building Summit information in there, and the IEQ Mold Disaster Restoration Conference. That'll be at the end of September. All right, before we do get any further, let's stop and thank our marquee sponsors.
1: John Don Products or restoration and abatement contractor shop, visit them at johndon.com.
0: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfacts.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services.
0: Okay. Um, also, don't forget the IAQ Training Institute website. Check out the Healthy Buildings Summit coming up at the end of September. We've got the conference information on there right in the middle. And uh, before we go to our guest, let's—I don't have the Z-man here today, so I'm going to handle the IAQ Radio trivia question. Okay, today's tr- question is brought to you by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association. You can learn more about them at Triska, T-R-S-C-A Back in around 2001, Dr. Spurgeon was interviewed on 48 Hours. During that interview, he was discussing a project, and I want you to give me the name of the person who owned the home that Dr. Spurgeon was inspecting during that interview for today's trivia question all right let's get the the good doctor on the line here first i want to give you people a little idea of who dr joe spurgeon is he's got a multidisciplinary doctorate degree in analytical chemistry and environmental health from the university of pittsburgh he was a certified industrial hygienist From 93 to 2013, when he went into a little semi-retirement, his career has included working as a research chemist on the lead paint poisoning program at NBS. He directed the, I guess that's the Federal Aviation Administration's Combustion Toxicology Laboratory, performing health assessments and implementing EPA's Laboratory Exposure Assessment Project. He's also worked as a consultant, specializing in microbial indoor air quality uh, for the United States Public Health Service. He has performed over 4,000 residential and commercial investigations involving water intrusions and microbial contaminants. He's also taught courses on mold investigation, sampling, and data interpretation methods. He serves on uh, many expert witness cases as um, water damage expert and mold remediation, and others. And most recently, he's written the book that we're here to talk about today. And we're looking forward to bringing him on, Dr. Joe Spurgeon. Do we have you on the line?
2: I'm here. Okay, you hear me?
0: We've got you. Very good. All right. Listen, you um, you started back in the early '90s, I guess it was doing indoor air quality-related work. Um, Prior to that, you had quite a bit of interesting uh, career, you know, back in industrial hygiene. What got you involved more so in the IAQ-related investigations and mold?
2: Well, I used to be a uh, builder and general contractor back in the 80s, and I uh, spent four weeks in the hospital from a a molding inspection, and that got my interest in mold. So I became very interested in the effects. The uh, general contractor, we were were remodeling a home, uh, and the drywall was all black, which I didn't know anything about mold at that time, and it put me in the hospital for four weeks. So after that, I decided I better learn something about mold.
0: And was this prior to all your education? I know you had an undergraduate, a master's degree, a PhD, you went to the... University of Pittsburgh, by the way, the Graduate School of Public Health, my alma mater. Was your building career prior to all that?
2: No, it was kind of in the middle. During the 80s, um, I just took it off and, and, and did some construction. Uh, and was a consultant in asbestos and what based paint, uh, various areas.
0: And did you ever figure out exactly what caused you to go to the hospital?
2: Well, yeah, it was after It was an infection in my right lung.
0: Oh, uh, okay. Interesting, interesting. Job. All right, well, let's let's get into the book a little bit. What what made you decide to write this book? I think you've been talking about this issue for years now. What made you decide to go ahead and get it all in writing?
2: Well, I uh, wrote it in an attempt to start a discussion on sampling and data interpretation methods. Uh, the book tracks the workshop that I have presented uh, for the past two years at IAQA National, in which I'll be presenting again uh, this January in Orlando. And about uh, over 95% of the uh, student reviews were positive, and there was a lot of interest in discussing the topics uh, that I covered. So I decided to write a book to bring uh, it into a wider audience and possibly broaden the discussion.
0: I see. And you—it's an interesting topic, in in that you know people have been doing mold sampling for years, and you state that none of the sampling methods or data data interpretation methods we use have really been validated. How is a sampling method validated? Well, there's two answers for
2: uh, the technical. Answer and a practical answer. Uh, technically, I mean, if you look at the NIOS methods, uh, for example, uh, the different uh, sample collection media have been tested. Uh, a range of acceptable airflow weights and sample times are determined. A range of usable concentrations, the reproducibility of the method, etc., are all determined. Uh, and to make sure the laboratory method is reproducible and, and check for interferences. But on a more practical level, uh, validation to me within the IAQ industry means that determining if a sampling method produces usable, actionable information. In other words, does it allow me to answer my customer's question? Is my home okay, or do I have a problem? And,
0: And that is the fundamental question, I guess. In many cases, at least, do I have a problem or not? You also talk about other types of mold sampling. Can you expand on that a little bit?
2: Other types of mold sampling? Well, well, other
0: reasons for mold sampling. So I I think you talked about exposure assessments and and health-related issues.
1: Well,
2: yeah. When I do an inspection, I do two basic assessments. I try to determine, number one, is the building structure structure contaminated. And number two, are the occupants, uh, do they have a significant exposure? So uh, what I have found over the years is that it takes different methods and different data interpretation methods to address those two assessments. So you need to know whether you're trying to determine whether the building's contaminated or the occupants are exposed or both. And that should influence the uh, the sampling methods and data interpretation methods that you select.
0: Why do you think this hasn't been done for mold sampling? That someone hasn't come out before you and done more, more validation of the sampling and the data interpretation methods.
2: No, I. I that calls for an opinion. Uh, when I'm an industrial hygienist, uh, I use validated methods primarily. When I am a mold inspector, I use unvalidated method. So I think it's a matter of just the industry has not required it to be done. And possibly there's a lack of understanding of the need to do it. So I think it's it's more of an educational process.
0: Let's let's educate a little bit here. Maybe you can help educate me on, on how to validate the sampling method. Let's say I I've got a project, and, and I know you've you've got a couple of good examples in your book. Um, oftentimes, it's uh, well. It looks like you get a lot of uh, medical type work in hospitals, etc. Let's let's talk a little bit about the one where you had a project where there was, I think, a torrential rainstorm, a sudden and and violent rainstorm. There was water damage in the hospital, and you were trying to if I recall correctly, you were trying to determine what areas needed remediated and in what order. Can you walk us through the process of choosing your sampling strategy and then your interpretation method for that job?
2: Yeah, that that, that example focuses more on the data interpretation method that I use. Uh, it, it's quite common to... Uh, use what I call the reference method, which is comparing the indoor concentration to the outdoor concentration. But if you think about it, uh, in a hospital, you're dealing with HEPA-filtered air, and hopefully it has no relationship to the outdoor air. So I typically do not use indoor-outdoor comparisons uh, in general, but specifically in hospital environments. So what I did there was I used what I would call a control method. I I tried to find a part of the hospital that was not contaminated, and I looked at the background concentrations there. Then I sampled in potentially contaminated areas of the hospital, and I compared the concentrations of indicator molds in the contaminated areas to the control area. I didn't even rely on outdoor samples. Matter of fact, I mean, I took outdoor samples, that they were so variable from morning to afternoon, from day to day, that they really were not a very uh, useful basis for comparison, whereas the concentrations in the control areas uh, were a useful basis of the, the actionable information.
0: So the, the three methods you discuss for data interpretation are the reference method, the control method, and the database method. And the reference method, I think, is the one that I would say most people in the industry use in one way or another, and that is essentially comparing the inside to the outside. But I got the impression in my reading, you don't feel that is very often, at least, the best method to use. Can you tell listeners a little bit about why you know, from your research and reviewing your results and results of others, you don't feel that indoor-outdoor comparison is at least oftentimes the best method to use?
1: Well, that's
2: difficult to explain on a a short video program. Um, It needs more of a detailed discussion as in the book, but there are a, a number of studies which have, and I'm talking over a half dozen published peer-reviewed articles, which if you read them, you would get the impression that indoor-outdoor comparisons really are not very effective. And we collected, uh, this is with Dan Bridge, uh, in cooperation with Dan Bridge. He was at Memphis Consulting Group at the time. But we looked at uh, 422 samples collected in 108 houses, located in 23 cities, in nine states, and over a two-year period, so across seasons. I looked at the comparison of the, indoor, the matched indoor samples for each house to the outdoor samples, and there was essentially no correlation at all. And it didn't provide any usable information for me. However, when I just simply focused on the uh, indoor samples, 422 indoor samples, distinctly with a simple rank order, then I got information that was usable, was actionable, and more importantly, helped me interpret the next airborne sample that I collected, which is the objective. Can you use the data you currently have available to you to... Interpret future samples. And by relying and focusing on indoor samples, I could. Secondly, uh, there's been two studies in the U.S. and in Europe of drywall samples purchased directly from Home Depot, Lowe's, etc. Uh, in every one of the samples tested, you could culture excuse me, culture out indicator mold spores, stachybotrys, aspen, totemium, whatever because the paper on drywall is manufactured for post-consumer-use papers. Those spores don't have to come in from the outdoor. They're already in the indoors. Simply add water, and they will grow.
0: And let's talk a little bit more. You mentioned the control method, and I think in the book you used the example that that was used a lot of times in commercial buildings where you had a large building and you could more easily determine what area was probably contaminated or potentially contaminated what areas were more likely somewhat background levels and then you were using um, you were comparing the two essentially to help you determine what actions to take is that can you can you explain that a little better than I just did?
2: Yeah, the reference method and the control method are are well-established and are discussed in, for example, the Bioaerosols Manual that was published in 1999 and in more recent IEQ reference books. And if you look at Bioaerosols, it will tell you uh, quite plainly that controlled samples should always be collected. Uh, especially in commercial buildings, but I do it in residential buildings too, that gives us a much better interpretation of the data that we're uh, detecting. If you take a million-square-foot building and you simply try to estimate the residence time of the spore in that building, from the time it is sucked into the air intake to the time it exits the building, it might be a three-day period. So if you're comparing indoor concentrations to outdoor concentrations, and you want to take an indoor sample today, maybe you should have taken the outdoor sample three days ago. It really doesn't make a lot of sense. But the other thing is it's very difficult to compare concentration. What can be done very effectively, and with good utility, is to compare distributions of concentrations. The indoor distribution to the outdoor distribution, that does make sense. Not comparing sample one indoors to sample two outdoors.
0: That doesn't make a lot of sense. And to do this, though, you you do have to take more samples than what people typically take on, you know, a, um, a, a residential, at least, inspection and or clearance type scenario.
2: No, not not really. I mean, uh, the laboratory doesn't care whether you send an outdoor sample or a control sample. Same number of samples.
0: Okay, I see what you're saying. All right, now let's let's talk a little bit about the database method of of interpret that interpretation. Give our listeners a little background on that.
2: Yeah, the database. Uh, uh, method is is not used in indoor air quality, but it is used in industrial hygiene. Uh, In shorthand, it means this method compares the distributions of concentrations rather than the concentrations themselves. It's not complicated, but it is a more sophisticated approach. And what I'm referring to is, is the following. For example, the first step would be going to your project files on your computer. Uh, then entering the ASPEN concentrations, for example, from the last 50 inspections that you performed in a spreadsheet. Then uh, put those ASPEN concentrations in rank order, lowest to highest, and you look at the range of concentrations and maybe you calculate some simple statistics. Then you get an idea of the lowest concentration and the highest concentration of ASPEN that you found in those 50 inspections, then you compare the current sample result to the range of sample results detected in those projects. For example, if the current result is at the 50th percentile, which is an average concentration, or if is it at the 95th percentile concentration, which
1: would mean it was elevated?
0: And you you focus a good bit on ASPEN, aspergillus penicillium-like spores, and I wonder if you could expand on on your reasoning for that with our listeners.
2: Yes, uh, ASPEN is, uh, um, and I assume most people have found this, is the most frequently detected indicator spore in contaminated indoor environment. It's not that Stachybotrys or cotonium or other spores aren't important. It's just that... uh, when I looked at my data, I collected ASP-10 in over 90% of contaminated environments, so it was a very useful indicator. While stachybotrys, maybe I only detected in 5 to 10% of those environments as airborne spores. So if I'm going to come up with a criterion or guideline for interpreting my data, i want to base it on ASP-10, which is commonly detected.
0: And then you you also break things down. You you keep it pretty simple. It's either a typical condition, potentially contaminated, or contaminated. So you're you're oftentimes breaking things into those three categories. And when I looked at some of the data, I was I was reading. It, it appeared to me that the aspens, and and this is a real generalization, but you were at You know, less than a 1,000 spores seemed like it was fairly common. And then, you know, 1 to 2 was kind of a little more uh, almost toward that potentially contaminated, and then above 2,000 was definitely contaminated. Did I misinterpret that or misread that, oversimplify it?
1: No, you have
2: to be very careful here. Uh, for example, in the one project I was talking about where we looked at the 422 indoor samples, which is a large database, uh, you got a break at about 1,000 scores per cubic meter. And it seemed that uh, those properties where the concentration of ASPEN was less than 1,000 were associated with uncontaminated properties. Those concentrations greater than 1,000 ASPEN they typically associated with contaminated property. So there seemed to be a clear break point there. And when you uh, plotted the curve, there was an actual break in the curve at that concentration. That does not mean that if it's 954 per cubic meter, everything is fine. If it's 1,050, it's contaminated. That's not how you use these data. But if you do use or Accept that 1,000 squares per cubic meter is some sort of a breakpoint, then you have to apply decision criteria to those data. And very typical decision criteria would be, for example, if an airborne concentration, if a sample result were less than one-half the limit, and the limit is 1,000 in this case. So if you have a result less than 500, you would say the assessment is acceptable. If the concentration were greater than 1,000, you would say the assessment, not the condition, but the assessment is unacceptable. If the concentration is between 500 and 1,000, you would say it's uncertain. the, The implication is this. If you accept that, And if you have an inspection where the outdoor concentration of ASPEN, let's say, is 3,000 and the indoor concentration is 1,500, what I'm saying is don't automatically dismiss that indoor concentration of 1,500 simply because it's less than the outdoor concentration on that day and at that hour that it may be significant. But that's just one result in your toolbox you would then look at the occupant. Do they have any uh, adverse health effects or don't they? And that would just simply help guide you on your inspection and your recommendations. You know,
0: you kind of anticipated my next point, question, whatever, in that this is just one tool in the toolbox. You're also looking at you know, visual signs of moisture, reports of water damage, etc., and you're you're using these in combination to make your decisions. Is that accurate?
2: Yes. I mean, I, I use my visual inspection. I use the incident history. I use an occupant health symptom survey, and I use the sample results. So, yes, I, I use all four of those um, parts of the inspection, and I assemble my results and conclusions from each part and then I draw specific or overall conclusions
0: Now I got the impression that you feel that people doing these types of inspections, mold related inspections would be making a mistake to not include some kind of sampling within their approach to doing a mold inspection Did I read that wrong?
2: No, I, I would have to say that's my opinion. I believe at least some sampling is a critical part of, of almost all mold investigations. Uh, this assumes, of course, that the customers can afford it. Uh, if not, then do the best you can. But I would say that a visual inspection is a necessary part of the inspection, that it's prone to false negatives, to, to not detecting mold when it's present. Sample collection is a more reliable method of detecting evidence of water intrusions or mold. And in my opinion, facts trump the opinion. The majority of problem houses I have investigated did not have any visible mold. Much of it was hidden inside walls, under cabinets, beneath carpet. So sampling has always been an important part of my investigations. And furthermore, in my opinion, Samples should always be collected at a minimum whenever occupants report adverse health effects or the inspection was performed by a physician. The inspection is preventative. For example, I've had a number of instances where organ transplant patients were being released from the hospital and they wanted to make sure the home environment was acceptable because they're very immune compromised individuals. And third, uh, whenever you're
0: involved in a legal case. I don't see how you can really proceed without without sampling. Okay, and one of the other things I noticed in the book was that you you talk quite a bit or or write quite a bit about sampling using filter samples, and, and you compare them quite a bit to, I guess it would be a slit impact or what people commonly call a spore trap. And I know that you, you were involved with a, a sampling uh, tool, I guess it would be, the Bi-Air, and I think it does both at the same time, but if you could clarify that for listeners, I'd appreciate
2: it. Yeah, I developed something called the Bi-Air filter cassette, uh, which collects duplicate samples on an air, a 25 millimeter filter. Um, and a A mold sample collected on a filter uh, can be analyzed uh, by microscopy or it can be filtered, uh, I'm sorry, cultured, or it can be uh, submitted for qPCR analysis. What I do is analyze the first sample traced by microscopy. If there's nothing there, that's as far as I go. But if there are indicator spores present and and I have a need to get into species, then I submit a second sample trace for culturing, or QPCR. And this is a more cost-effective approach for the client. Filter cassettes are a common method for collecting airborne particles. Uh, when we collect asbestos or lead-paint samples, we use a filter cassette, not a slit-infraction cassette. In addition, the ocean method for airborne mold spores specify the use of a filter cassette with an MCE filter an air flow rate of one liter per minute, and a maximum sampling time of 120 minutes. So filters are very commonly used in industrial hygiene and I really believe they should be used more often in IAQ inspections.
0: I'd like to talk a little bit more about that after we come back from our break. We're going to take a short break, thank our sponsors, and we'll be back with Dr. Joe Spurgeon having a great discussion, most of it Around his book coming out. Well, it's out now, and uh, we'll be right back with Dr. Spurgeon in about 90 seconds.
1: The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Grey Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com.
0: Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com.
1: And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products or restoration and abatement contractor shop, visit them at johndon.com.
0: Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com.
1: IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services.
0: Okay. We're back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Joe Spurgeon. We're talking about his new book, The Collection and Interpretation of Indoor Mold Samples, A Comparison of Methods. <clears throat> Excuse me. Dr. Spurgeon, We were when we left, oh, by the way, I got a quick question for you on my trivia question. I asked them to let me know which home you were working on. I've got three different answers. I think I know, but I want to make sure. On that 48-hour video, whose home were you doing the inspection at when they interviewed you?
2: That was uh, Aaron Brockovich.
0: Okay, I was right. All right. Thank you, John Lapiterre. You are the winner. We had uh, three different answers on that one. Okay, let's go back and talk for just a moment about I I really – I was very intrigued by um the the sampling you were doing when you were using a filter cassette and I just wanted to have you maybe get a little more detail for listeners on the first level of analysis is that going to be similar to the way you analyze an asbestos cassette where you you know use a um uh, some kind of a, a chemical to dissolve the filter so that you can see the spores, or am I missing it?
2: It's exactly like an asbestos cassette. You just put it in an acetone quick fix, you dissolve the filter, you put a stain on it. Uh, Any laboratory that does asbestos can do uh, a filter sample. And many, many laboratories uh, do analyze filter samples for more.
0: I see. Okay, and and so you, you get that. And by the way, um, thank you. I think it's John. Um, Eric Ellis was the husband of Aaron Brokovich. So you were correct in a way, but John beat you to it. All right. Another thing I noticed that I wanted to, you know, because I, I was trying to figure out, okay, in an hour, what are the key points I need to hit? One of them was that you urge laboratories or at least you urge indoor environmental professionals to request of their laboratory that they differentiate between ASPEN spores, and I think it was rough versus smooth. Can you expand on that a little bit?
2: Yeah, it, 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 basically when I first got in the business, laboratories reported ASPEN as type 1, type 2, type 3, et cetera. And uh, if you look at the BioAerosols Manual or, or other reference books, they specifically state that, yes, you can use indoor-outdoor comparison, but only if you're comparing species, uh, not aspen 10 type spores. And, and my point is we, can, we can't get the species by microscopy with a spore trap, but we can certainly differentiate between the type of mold spores the laboratory is seeing. I do my own analysis, and that's one of the reasons why. And many, many times, just as an example, I'll find smooth aspen outdoors and rough aspen indoors. It's obvious it's not the same spores. So, you know, if you have 3,000 smooth spores outside and no rough spores outside and you have a thousand rough spores inside, there has to be a source indoors. Those spores cannot come from the outdoors. So it really, just looking at 3,000 outdoors and 1,000 indoors, if they're totally different types of spores, gives you a a false analysis, a false interpretation.
0: Okay, and, and that's. I want to get one more topic on the Air sampling, and then I, I really need to get to some of the other topics in your book because they're they're also very interesting. But before we do, with with respect to air sampling, I got the impression that at least for some types of um, spores, you felt that the typical spore trap slit impactor may be underestimating the amount. Uh, uh, the, the number of spores the, the in the air.
2: Well, yeah, let, let, let me say that um, spore traps actually do a better job, in my opinion, than commonly used culturable
1: samples.
2: Uh, everyone seems to focus on the limit of detection of a sampling method. But in my opinion, the maximum reportable concentration is the more important parameter. For example, if the actual concentration in the air is 30,000 colony-forming units per cubic meter, but the sampler saturates at 7,000 CFU per cubic meter, then the reported data are not very representative of actual conditions, and it's nearly impossible to adequately assess health effects. Now, spore traps do under, underestimate concentration. Uh, for example, commonly used spin-impaction cassettes collect about 50% of the S10 spores that are present. Only about 5% of the ketonium spores that are actually present. Uh, and that's, that's one out of every 20 ketonium spores is collected. Hmm. So yes, uh, both types of samples, culturable and spore traps tend to underestimate what's actually present. And I think it's uh, the situation is so bad that it's almost impossible to investigate the association between airborne mold and adverse health effects because the quality of the data available to us is just so poor.
0: Hmm. You know... While you were talking, while you were answering that question, it made me think of another one, and I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. Because you, 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 when you say that we may be underestimating the number, but also that would, you know, lead to data that wasn't really very useful for health, and then I hear others saying, well, you know, doing spore traps or cultures or any type of airborne sampling really isn't helping us much because of all the fragments that are also associated with these contaminated environments. Where do you, where do you fall on the, on the um, spectrum of people that are concerned about versus not terribly concerned about fragments? I think that's another
2: discussion. Uh, I, I think uh, fragments are uh, important. Uh, especially the microfragments, as far as allergenic uh, responses. I think they're probably important. But uh, let's take first things first. If if we are going to admit that we can't even measure the number of spores present in the air, let's at least come up with a method that can, uh, that can do that. And then we can get more sophisticated and start measuring spore fragments, hypofragments, etc. But right now, we can't even measure the number of spores that are present.
0: Hmm. and you I think you are urging people to some degree to go more to uh, filter type sampling as opposed to the impactor type sampling is that accurate
2: well you, I think an inspector and investigator should understand the objectives that they have and what they're trying to accomplish uh, I separate building assessment an Occupant Exposure Assessment. I still use split patching cassettes for a quick assessment uh, of the indoor building environment. Uh, but, if the investigation involves bulk effects, or it's a legal case, I prefer filter cassettes with a minimum sample time of at least one hour or more. In other words, a long-term sample as defined by NIOP. When assessing hospital environments, for example, I prefer using filters with sampling times of three hours to eight hours and QPCR an hour. So as long as you understand the objective, uh, you can select the appropriate sample. I, I do not believe that good and passion cassettes are inappropriate for assessing building contamination. But I do believe they're inappropriate for assessing occupant
0: got it okay and let's let's move over to carpet sampling i i got to read through that section not as detailed as i would like but i think you know obviously buildings are loaded with carpet oftentimes and and especially commercial buildings nowadays and you talked about your comparison of i think it was three maybe four different types of of carpet sampling can you give listeners just kind of an overview of of what you found was probably the best method for doing carpet sampling?
2: Well, yeah. uh, Yes, that's a a good opening. uh, (laughs) And it's a good example of of talking about method validation and sort of what I did to develop the carpet sampling method. Uh, Let me explain that first. Uh, First, I separated carpets into three groups. Uh, Carpets in the center of the room, which uh, were clean carpets, Carpets under windows and sliding glass doors, which were potentially contaminated carpets, and carpets with visible contamination, that is, they were known to be contaminated. Second, I sampled the carpets in those three groups using various sampling methods. Then I looked at the data reported uh, on both a weight basis and an area basis. Finally, I determined which combination of sample collection and data interpretation methods allowed me to statistically separate the carpets into those three groups based solely on the sample results. And I did find a sampling method that that allowed me to do that. Uh, And then I recommended to my clients that they, one, do nothing for uncontaminated carpets, clean, potentially contaminated carpets, and discard contaminated carpets. The method that really works the best is what I call open face fixed area. It's really uh, simply a, an open face 25 millimeter filter cassette held firmly against the carpet for five seconds. You pick it up, move it to another area of the carpet for another five seconds, and you do that 20 times. Uh, approximately, the open area of the filter cassette is, is five square centimeters. So if you do it 20 times, you've sampled 100 square centimeters, which is quick, rapid, easy to do. Uh, and then I report the results as colony-forming units, or, if, or QPCR if you wish, per 100 square centimeters of carbon. And when we re- collect the sample that way and report the results on an area basis, the sample results uh, do allow you to place the carpet into one of those three groups. I really,
0: I appreciated that part of the book. I thought it was very—you um, explained ex- and you just explained it very well how you came up with the information, what your basis for, you know, the the, the findings was, and then how you use that information. So I think that was great. Is there anything else? I'm running a little low on time, but I want to make sure. Are there any other key points on carpet sampling you want to make sure listeners get?
2: Well, I, there is one thing I would hope to say. Uh, I hope that uh, if enough people read this book, we can start a, a rather robust discussion, discussion of sampling and data interpretation methods. For example, whether or not indoor-outdoor comparisons actually have any utility. And second, the utility of the numerical guidelines. Uh, I think we need to be honest. It, it's hard to believe that when an inspector reviews a laboratory, uh, laboratory report full of numbers, that they don't use numerical guidelines to interpret the data reported by the lab. Those guidelines are in their heads, not written down so we cannot uh, even assess their validity or their utility. I believe we need permission as an industry to openly discuss the utility of sampling methods, numerical guidelines, accept those that make sense, and agree to discard those that don't. So I wanted the opportunity to, to at least say that. Yeah,
0: it's been quite a while, and we haven't done it yet, so let's, let's hope we can help at least get that issue out. I'm, I want to help you do that. By the way, where can people get the book?
2: Uh, they can go to my website, uh, wwwbi aircom or www.expertonmold.com
0: Got it. And I, I did have that in the show announcement. I had the buy air... Um, the Buy Air website in the show announcement, and we'll make sure it's in the um, Cliff's blog when Cliff does his blog of the show, and we send that out next week. We'll make sure it's in there. All right, I want to move over to wall check samples because I, I I gotta tell you I never was a big wall check sampling guy. I always thought you know let's take a visual inspection of it. Let's let's go below the baseboard, cut out a um, you know one-by-three-inch piece of drywall, take a look at it, do a good thorough visual inspection, see if the tack strips are rusty, etc. And when I read that section, I realized, you know, you have some data in there with respect to false negatives that caught me by surprise. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about wall check sampling and false negatives on the visual inspection when people were looking at wall cavities.
2: Yeah, I I give uh, several presentations on that, but I I have limited data in the uh, uh, one example in the book where um, the legal case, so there was three industrial hygienists inspecting the samples, and I I took a wall cavity sample uh, from the wall. We then cut out, about a 6-inch by 12-inch piece of drywall, and then I swabbed the back of each piece of drywall. We did that five times, five samples. And all three IHs were standing there. We all agreed that the drywall was perfectly clean. It was no problem. But when the sample results came back, uh, there was uh, some of the sample drywall pieces contained over a million colony-forming units per square inch culturable mold. Uh, that's quite a lot. And here we had three independent IHs standing there, all agreeing that we were looking at perfectly clean drywall. Hmm. In, uh, in my presentations, I use a lot of other examples, but there have been numerous instances where if I had not swabbed the drywall, we would not have detected the mold.
0: And d- you, you say there was limited amount of, of data on this, but are there other studies that have kind of shown the same thing?
2: Well, I have. I I do a presentation on that, and I put other examples in, yes.
0: So you've had quite a few examples on that. Now, what if you could, for listeners, if you could, you know, here's the thing. Some people are going to read your book. They're going to take your advice. They're going to do the things that you're recommending. Others are going to listen and, and do their best to go out and make some changes to their protocol that would um, help them do a little better job. They may not go to the degree that we would like. For those that are going to do the second, they're going to listen and they're going to go out and they're going to change their technique a little bit, but maybe not to the level we would like. What's the biggest thing you'd like to see them do with respect to wall checks? Wall checks? Yes.
2: Uh, Well, use them. (laughs) Uh, If you look at the book, we compared uh, Dan Stice, actually, did a comparison of, I believe, six different samplers and sample probes. And out of those six examples, I believe two of them actually worked, the other four didn't. So if you're going to collect a wall cavity sample, use a sampler and sample probe combination that can, where you can interpret the data. Why would you collect a wall cavity sample that cannot be interpreted? So. And I've given a number of presentations on this over the years, um, at AIHA and IAQA. But, you know, two methods work, four methods don't. So simply don't go out and do wall cavity sampling. But but I will guarantee you, in my opinion, wall cavity sampling is as good or better than boroscopes for destructive testing. Uh, It's no different. It simply gives you a numerical readout. And allows you to uh, detect what's
0: present in the wall cavity and identify what's
2: there. And did I catch.? Doing destructive testing and then taking a swab sample, but it's cheaper and faster.
0: Did I get the right impression? And and I had to, like I said, I was finishing up last night and I I got the impression that there was better, you were getting better data when you were using a more uh, aggressive sampling technique by tapping on the wall or whatever.
2: Yeah, I I, I published a, a paper in a peer-reviewed journal comparing quiescent and aggressive sampling, and there really isn't that much different for if the wall cavity is dry, but you can imagine if there's any dampness or wetness inside the wall cavity, it's going to be difficult to get the spores airborne to where you can detect. So yes, I recommend aggressive sampling because you simply don't know what the conditions are inside the wall cavity.
1: So I,
0: I always keep aggressive samples. Okay, I like that. And, and I'm wondering, uh, as far as laboratories, I, I I wanted to ask this a little earlier, and now I, I, I remembered I didn't get to it when we were talking about air sampling and laboratory databases and and laboratories that use databases to help inspectors make judgment calls. Is that essentially the database method that? that you reference in your book? is—is it, is it, Are they using a similar method, or is this just made-up science?
1: But, well,
2: <laughs> that's a compound question. Let's take the first part. All right. <laughs> uh, the, the approach as the database method I'm referring to, the answer is no. What they're doing is using their databases to compare indoor to outdoor samples. Uh, I don't do that. I use my database, which is only made up of indoor samples. And I compare my current sample to 200, 300 previous samples that I've collected and find out where it falls within the range of, for example, ASPEN concentrations. If if 95% of the ASPEN samples I've collected are higher than my current sample result, then I'm going to say, hey, this this comes from an uncontaminated environment. If 95% of the previous ASPIN concentrations i detected are below or less than my current sample result, I'm going to say, hey, this is this is a rather high concentration.
0: And what are labs doing? Or I thought they were trying to do something similar but using a bunch of different people's data.
1: Well, you
2: can use different data. Uh, the, the data that we use were collected, like I said, uh, in uh Twenty-three cities in nine states. They were collected by multiple uh, inspectors over a two-year period. That makes the system robust. That makes your conclusions robust. But if you're comparing indoor to outdoor concentration, and there isn't any association between indoor and outdoor concentration, then you have to ask what's the utility of the comparison.
0: Okay, uh, let me, we've got about a little more than five minutes left and I've got about six more topics. I want to just throw out a topic from your book and if you could give me a key point from that topic, I'd appreciate that. And and, and one is surfacing of s- soft surface samples. I didn't get a chance to read that. Um, were you able to give readers some better guidance on the method they should use for sampling soft surface samples?
2: Well, let me rephrase that. Uh, I'm an expert witness, so I have to be able to go into court and recommend whether or not uh, personal items can be cleaned or whether they should be discarded. And what I talk about there is if you need to answer that question, you can do what I call differential sampling. And that is, you can take a filter cassette with a beveled plastic tubing on the tip, uh, for example, and you can brush it across the surface uh, of a a couch fabric. And that picks up the mold spores that are on the surface of that C-cushion. You can also then take a filter cassette, open-faced, hold it firmly against the cushion, and that not only picks up the spores that are on the surface, but those that are deep within the cushion. And then you take uh, the two samples and analyze them and see if you get the same results or different results. Typically, if that couch is contaminated, you'll get cladosporium, for example, lying on the surface of the couch just from airborne spores falling out. If the couch is contaminated, you'll pick up ASPEN and other indicator spores from deep within the couch. So you'll get two different results for the two different methods. And if you have deep-seated mold contamination, it's pretty well established that you can't clean that. So if I detect that, then I'm going to recommend discarding the item. If I just detect surface mold, then I'll say clean the item.
0: Okay. I think that's, that was tremendous, nice, you know, precise, and um, quick overview of that section. I also want to ask you, if you would, to do the same thing. On, on a section you had here on surface mold and occupant exposure. Can you give us the key takeaway from that?
2: Yeah, that was uh, help uh, Florence Rue at Amtech uh, Incorporated in Fremont, California, went through her database, and she gathered information on where she had surface mold samples and airborne samples collected in the same room at the same time. And what we did is we plotted the airborne concentration of ASPN versus whether it was few, many, two numbers to count, visible colonies, etc. And what we got is a fairly linear plot between airborne concentrations and surface, uh, the amount of surface mold reported. And it showed quite clearly that surface mold was affecting occupant exposure and it gave you a rough estimate
0: of the amount of exposure. Hmm. So something we assume but don't always take the time to document. All right. Let's, Let's go. Give me one more, if you would, because this is a big one for a lot of people, and that's the air supply ducts and returns. Can you give us the key takeaway from your book on that?
2: Well, there really isn't any key uh, takeaway. Uh, what I do present, what I try to do for uh, air ducts, air returns, uh, soft surfaces, etc., is to present some data ranges for samples that I've collected from clean items. So if you have a result in this range, all I can tell you is, when I got a sample in that range, sample result in that range, it was from a clean item. So it just gives the, the inspector some feel for, you know, whether or not you're working with clean items or potentially contaminated items. That's not very well developed, but it provides some guidance.
0: Okay. And maybe one more if you would, Doctor Spurgeon. Microscopy versus QPCR. Is there agreement between the methods?
2: Uh, there can be. Normally, we got good, now again, when, uh, with the buyer filter cassette, we take duplicate samples. So they are duplicates. And when I do microscopy and then send that sample in for QPCR analysis, in general, I get good correlation. I mean, we get correlation coefficients, uh, you know, 0.8, 0.9, which is pretty good for two different methods. So there is good correlation. However, I, I, the one warning I will give you is I had one sample where I measured roughly 10,000 Aspen spores per cubic meter in the first sample trace. I submitted the sample, second sample trace for QPCR, and it came back with zero detected. Hmm. If you don't include the right primers in QPCR, you will not detect what may be there. So I recommend, if in all possible, any time you submit a sample for a QPCR, you try to do microscopy also. But in general, I get a good correspondence.
0: I see. And before we go, I always like to make sure we give you the last word. First of all, thank you for joining us, but also for tolerating my request to summarize things that aren't always easy to summarize in just a few sentences or or just a few moments. I really appreciate you doing that because it's not easy, and you you, you wrote an entire book on the topic, and to try and summarize what's in that book in an hour was really difficult, and I've already got people saying that was a great program and thank you. So I want to thank you personally. Before we go, though, is there anything you'd like to add that we missed or that you just want to make sure that people – who are listening to the show, get from this show?
2: Just repeating, uh, again, I I basically taught this book uh, two years in the past. Again, next January, the response has been very good. There is a desire to talk about these topics within the industry. I just hope that we can get a conversation started. That that is my hope.
0: Well, I, I hope right along with you. That's why we wanted to bring you on. We're going to Put the uh, location where people can get the book, again, on our website and also in Cliff's blog. It's um, buy-air.com. I think I got that right.
2: Yes, B-I-A-I-R.
0: And then um, mold.com So I think you can pick up Dr. Spurgeon's book on the collection and interpretation of indoor mold samples, a comparison of methods. I encourage you to get it, especially if any of you are out there doing expert witness work. You definitely want a copy of this in your uh, library, and you you want to get to know it. I know you know. I get asked to do those things from time to time. I try and bring in people like Dr. Spurgeon here as opposed to doing it myself, but I at least like to know what questions to ask him, and um, I think this would be a great, resource in your library, so I encourage listeners to go ahead and grab it. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thank you so much to this week's guest, Dr. Joe Spurgeon. We uh, really appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. All right, and also want to let listeners know that next week we're going to do a restoration show. We've got the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog. He said, Joe, when I have something to say, I'll let you know. We'll do a show That will be next Friday at noon. The following week right now, it looks like I've got Dr. Glenn Morrison on. Looking forward to that one as well. So for those of you out there listening, thanks for joining us. As always, much appreciated. Thanks to, of course, my co-host, the Z-Man, who was not able to make it today, but he'll put together the blog for this show. John, you got to have faith at the controls and, most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. By the way, downloads have been through the wall. Love it, through the roof, whatever you want to say. Keep it up, folks. Thanks, and come back for the next episode of IAQ Radio next Friday at noon.